But anyway, as a reminder, we as a church are um, on a mission to grow into becoming people of prayer who know how to pray in accordance to God's will. And so in line with that mission, on Wednesday nights we are studying Paul's prayers. You see, since these prayers of Paul are recorded in the pages of Scripture, then that means they are inspired by the Holy Spirit and they are perfect expressions of God's will. And so as we study these prayers of Paul, what we're really doing is we're learning how to pray in accordance to God's will will, what it looks like to pray in accordance to God's will. And so as we step into Paul's prayer closet every Wednesday night and we listen in on his prayers, we're learning what to adore, appreciate, ask for, admonish, and amen in our own prayers. That's the big, broad outline we're following. Well, we've already looked at as a church what to adore in prayer, and we ought to adore God. We ought to worship and to praise Him for all that He is in all of His character. We should study God's character in Scripture so that when we pray, we can worship Him for that. We also looked at what to appreciate, and what we saw is that we ought to appreciate Jesus Christ and every spiritual blessing that we have in Him. That'll fill up your prayer life quite a bit when you start thinking it through. And now we're looking at a church, as a church, what to ask for in prayer. And uh, we're grouping all of these prayers of asking that Paul gives along three categories. What to ask for uh, for those outside of Christ. What to ask for for those who are in doubt. And then what to ask for for those in Christ. And we already learned what to ask for those who are outside of Christ because there's only one way that God instructs us to pray for those who are clearly unsaved, and that is to pray for their salvation. Romans 10.1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might have their marriages fixed, that their stock exchange, you know, stocks might go up, right? That they would vote for the right person in November, No, you won't see any of that. When Scripture says, believer, this is how you pray for an unbeliever, it always says, pray for their salvation. This is how we pray for the lost. We don't pray focused on improving their physical, financial, relational, or sociological conditions. We pray focused squarely on their salvation. If our prayers even touch any of those elements, it's always towards the goal that they might be saved. Because what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? That's why we pray for their salvation. That's how we pray for those who are clearly outside of Christ. We pray for their salvation. Now, how do we pray then for those who are, you could say, in doubt? How do we pray for those individuals whose true spiritual state is still unclear to us? Because in God's mind, it's very clear who is saved and who is not, right? But in our mind, it's not always that clear. Uh, We cannot see people's hearts. And so how do we pray for those whose spiritual state is still unclear? Scripture gives us three ways that we can pray for those who are in doubt. First, we should pray for their restoration. That's what we saw last week. Uh, Not last week, two weeks ago, sorry. (laughs) Uh, In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 7 through 9. When it comes to those who might say that they believe in Jesus, but their lives aren't really lining up, which was kind of what was going on in the Corinthian church. They professed faith in Christ, but oh my word, their lives were struggling with sin. 
um, when their lives weren't really lining up with their profession, we learned from Paul that we ought to pray for their restoration. That is, for their repentance. Just like the shoulder, if you remember, that's been popped out of joint. We ought to work towards and pray that they would experience repentance and be restored back to a proper place and into a right relationship with God. Because even if, uh, because even if working and praying towards repentance causes them and it causes us some temporary pain, which it does, it's never fun to talk to someone about, hey, you need to get your life right with God, even though it might cause some temporary pain, it, what it spares them from is so much worse. So much worse. And so when it comes to people who profess faith in Christ but have a life that isn't adding up, when we look at those people whose spiritual state is in doubt in that way, we ought to pray for their restoration, for repentance. Because whether they're saved or whether they're not saved, we might know, but what we do know is they need to repent. They need to turn from their sin to God. But there's another category of people whose spiritual state is often in doubt in our own minds, And those are people who are almost the complete opposite of the previous group we just looked at. These are individuals who have been exposed to the gospel in the past, who are sensitive to God's word, and who even seem to possibly be exhibiting a change of heart and behavior, but at the same time, for one reason or another, their profession of faith isn't all that clear to us. Maybe we haven't had the chance to explicitly ask them, what their testimony of faith is, and hear it. Or maybe they haven't been able to explain it to us as clearly as we would like. You say, I can't understand that. Have you had kids? (laughs) How many times has your children prayed a prayer, right? They make a profession, wasn't the clearest, and you start watching their life, and you start seeing things that look like maybe there's a change of heart there, but then you ask them about the gospel, you ask them about faith, you ask them about repentance. It's not the clearest explanation, and you sit there and say, I don't know where my kid is at. How do you pray for someone like that whose life might be exhibiting some of the things that you think are associated with salvation but their profession of faith just isn't as strong as you would like it to be? It isn't there. How do we pray for these types of people? Well, setting aside the most obvious reality that we as believers would want to be working really hard towards them making a clearer profession of faith, in the meantime, as we're working towards that end, we as believers ought to be praying for them. How? Praying for mercy. Praying for mercy. Until we can hear a clear profession of faith that complements their seeming transformation that we think we're seeing in their lives, we should be praying for mercy. And this comes from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Where... Paul writes these words, and kind of uh, as background, verse 15, context, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me, May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at and you know and you know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So here we see, and I'll explain it, here we see Paul praying for mercy. And I would contend praying for mercy for those who are in doubt. But before we go any further, let's just go to the throne of grace tonight 
in prayer and ask the Lord to give us the grace that's needed to understand and obey his word tonight. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for how it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And as we seek to learn uh, what we ought to ask for in prayer, we thank you that your word even sheds light on that subject and shows us how to pray for all the different people that are around us that are in our lives. And Father, we all know those individuals who might have a profession of faith, but their life isn't lining up. We know those people, and you've told us how to pray for them, and we also have those people that their lives seem to be changing. They seem to have been exposed to the gospel. They seem to be sensitive, but we're not sure of their profession. We're not sure of where they are in their testimony and their understanding of the truth. And so, Father, we thank you that you have taught us how to pray for them as they're in that state as well. And so, Father, just help us to understand this passage, lead us on level ground, and Father, I pray that you would be honored and glorified tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said before, this is Paul praying for those whose spiritual state is in doubt that they would receive mercy. Uh, that's what he prays for. He says it two times. Uh, in verse 16, he says, may the Lord grant mercy. And again, in verse 18, may the Lord grant mercy, grant him to find mercy. So this is Paul praying for Anesiphorus and for his entire household that he would receive mercy. Now that word mercy is elias in the Greek, and it means to show compassion to the destitute, to give help to the wretched, and to bestow relief to the miserable. (laughs) Okay, so that's kind of a formal definition if you want to know what mercy is. But to break it down to its more basic level, mercy always includes at least three elements. Seeing a need, feeling the need, and meeting the need. That's what mercy is. We see that played out in the story of the Good Samaritan, if you recall, in Luke chapter 10, which Jesus presents in verse 37 as an illustration of God-like mercy. If you recall, the Samaritan sees the need, just like everybody else in the story, sees the man beaten laying on the side of the road, probably on his way to death, right? Um, But unlike the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan feels the need, and therefore goes to great lengths to meet the need. That's mercy. It's when someone sees a need, feels the need, and meets the need. If you consider yourself a merciful person, I want to humble you tonight by saying, okay, you can feel compassion, but are you meeting it? It is seeing it, it is feeling it, and it's meeting it. And so here Paul prays that the Lord would do that, towards Anesiphorus and his entire household, that the Lord would see the need, feel the need, and meet the need, that the Lord would grant mercy, as I've said before, to someone whose spiritual state is in doubt. Now, you might be asking yourself, though, why do you say that, Pastor? Why, why would you say that Anesiphorus's spiritual state is in doubt? I would say that it's in doubt because of the nature of Paul's prayer and request. Honestly, I've, I beat my head against this, and after studying this passage, I have to say I can't be 100% confident knowing where Onesiphorus is spiritually. You see, there's a lot that would seem to indicate from this passage that Onesiphorus is a believer, uh, just by looking first at the descriptions of his life, right? In contrast to all those people who professed faith in Asia, yet ultimately turned away from Paul, Paul says in verses 16 through 17 that Anesiphorus often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. And then he says in verse 18, and you know 
And you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So Onesiphorus is actually dem- is actually shown as demonstrating more compassion and more mercy and more faithfulness than those who are more clearly identified as professing believers. Onesiphorus exhibited faithfulness, courage, zeal, and service. We don't know towards Christ, but at least towards the Apostle Paul who preached Christ. Second, he's greeted at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19, alongside other people that we know are believers. He says in chapter 4, verse 19, meet Prisca, which is probably an alternative name for Priscilla, and Aquila, and the household, he says, of Anesiphorus. And then finally, Paul speaks in verse 18 of Anesiphorus standing before the Lord on that day which could be the same that day mentioned in verse 12, where all of Paul's works will be judged and where Paul will be awarded according to chapter 4, verse 8. In other words, it would seem to indicate that this day that that Paul is wanting Onesiphorus to find mercy in would be the judgment seat of Christ, which is reserved solely for believers. So everything that I'm seeing out of Onesiphorus' life would seem to indicate that he's a believer, until I come to actually what's said and what's not said. And then it becomes a lot more in doubt. You see, Paul prays twice that the Lord would grant mercy to Onesiphorus and to his household, that he would sovereignly gift mercy upon him and those in his house. And while you could argue that Paul just might be asking for God to see, feel, and meet any number of potential needs in Anesiphorus' life, there's a major problem with that, and that is this. When you study the totality of the New Testament, there's always a salvific connection made to divine mercy being given to people. There's always a salvific connection. So whenever the New Testament talks about God giving mercy to someone, it nearly always is connected to God giving salvation to that person. Literally, in all the instances of this word, I could not find one time when it talks about God giving mercy and it isn't referring to God imparting salvation. I have a huge list. Here's just a few to demonstrate. Luke 1, through 78 talks about how the tender mercy of our God has visited us from on high. You say, how? By giving us a knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. God's mercy there is equivalent to God giving salvation. Romans 9.23 talks about vessels of mercy in contrast to vessels of destruction. So God giving mercy is equivalent to God giving salvation. Romans 11.31 talks about God showing mercy to the Gentiles so that one day the Jews would receive mercy. So mercy from God is equivalent to salvation from God. Romans 15.9 talks about how Christ became a servant of salvation. Why? So that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There's a parallel between mercy and salvation, and this goes on and on. Galatians 6.16 talks about how God's mercy falls upon people when they've become circumcised in heart at salvation. Ephesians 2.4 talks about God being rich in mercy by making us alive together in Christ at salvation. Titus 3.5 talks about according to God's own mercy, he saved us. And 1 Peter 1.3, which we're going to look about this, uh, this Sunday morning, says according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So do you get the point that I'm trying to say <laughs> is whenever the New Testament, you look at his life and you would sit there and say, everything seems to be indicating that he's a believer until you look at Paul's prayer and you sit there and say, but that's almost always referring to salvation. Whenever the New Testament talks about God giving mercy to someone, it nearly always refers to God giving salvation. I can't find 
Maybe you can do your studies yourself. This is where I say, you know, do your studies. I can't find an exception to that. So when Paul prays, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anesiphorus, the weight of Scripture would seem to point us towards viewing that as a salvific prayer because God giving mercy is almost always connected to God giving salvation. So anyway, I make all of that point for this reason. Everything about his life would seem to indicate the presence of salvation, but everything about Paul's prayers would seem to indicate a need for it. That's why I say that this is a prayer for mercy for those who are in doubt. Where someone has heard the gospel, is sensitive to the word, and seems to be exhibiting a change of heart and behavior, but at the same time, for one reason or another, their profession of faith isn't all that clear. So how do we pray for that person? We pray, as Paul prays here, that the Lord would grant them mercy as we pursue a greater understanding of their faith. Right, that God would grant them mercy. That's that the God who sees the heart, and we don't, that the God who sees the heart would see their spiritual need, right? The true spiritual need of their heart. That the God of tender mercy would feel their spiritual need. And that the God of all salvation would meet their spiritual need. And only he can. That's why Paul prays twice in this passage, may the Lord grant mercy. May the Lord grant him to find mercy. Mercy, right? Mercy is God's alone to give. It doesn't matter how moral you are. It doesn't matter how reformed you are. If you're taking an Onesimus's or Onesiphorus's life, it doesn't matter how faithful, courageous, zealous you are. It doesn't how much you've even blessed ministers of God. You can never earn God's mercy. Even Onesiphorus's, even Onesiphorus needs mercy, and so. We as God's people, when we're dealing with someone who seems to be indicating salvation, but their profession of faith, for one reason or another, is not that clear, we should pray that mercy should be given. That when we consider those whose spiritual state is in doubt, we seek to make their profession sure, and along the way we pray for mercy to be given to them. And so that's where I encourage you tonight from Second Timothy chapter 1. That we ought to join Paul in praying towards that end tonight. For those people that are in our lives, that their spiritual state is in doubt as we seek to make their, as we seek to be aided by God in making their calling and election sure, that we would pray that the Lord would grant them mercy in that day. In that day. So, that's what I wanted to share from Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18.